Hey, hey, this is your Great Legs dude, Jeff Liske, coming to you on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast, where we're going to be going rage angler on all things Great Lakes, from gear, fly, big water, and swinging flies, of course. If it concerns the Great Lakes, we've got you covered, so stay tuned to this next episode. Hey, 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 welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Great Lakes Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Liske, a.k.a. Great Lakes Dude. In this solo episode, I'm going to break it down into two parts, where I'm going to be taking the mystery out of choosing the right single-hand or two-handed rod and how to match them with today's modern fly lines to get the job done on the Great Lakes and its tributaries. This episode was inspired by the number of anglers that reach out to me and ask me what line or rod should I get to fish this blankety-blank venue, right? There are just so many rivers, so many creeks, so many lakes, and all the Great Lakes combined, right? It's crazy how many anglers over the years I've had the pleasure to share some water time with And the one thing that always seems to be a common factor is not having the right line matched to the rod. Seems real simple, but it can get a little complicated at times. Just for the record, there is no bad fly rod and there's no bad fly line. Just a bad match of the two for what you're trying to achieve at the time. You know, this sometimes stems from knowing better and just trying to make things work with the outfit you have. And and I'm guilty of it myself. Sometimes I'm like, geez, I should have just picked up and tried to grab another rod to make this happen. But you just muscle through it. You know, the two major issues are that there are so many choices and you're trying to kill two birds with one stone. But in fly fishing lingo, it's you're trying to catch two different species with the same line and rod combo. Very easily to be done. You can do it all day long, but it could be better off if you looked a little deeper and got a different line for the job or maybe a different rod just to make things easier. Let's look at both. So you walk into your local fly shop to purchase your outfit. There's a forest of rods standing in racks all over the wall. And there's this endless eye-catching colorful boxes of fly lines nearby. Now do you say to yourself, now what? Well, hey, no worries. You're in super good hands. The shop rats live and breathe fly fishing. They have a wide range of local and distant fisheries and knowledge that, you know, they are for sure going to get you dialed in. So here comes the tricky part. Now you have to ask or tell them what you want, right? So this is where you really need to ask yourself, can one rod actually in one combo achieve multiple angling tasks and perform it well across the board for you? Well, yes, you can use one rod in one line, multiple species and venues. I I do it all the time, like we talked about. But in general, if you think you're going to be have the fly fishing bug or getting into it a little bit deeper, 
The best approach is to build a platform of three rods, starting with one, you know, that you're going to use most on your local waters. You know, this local water, when you're first starting out, it could be a retention pond back behind your house and with the kiddos because you just don't have the time to hit the water like you want. So, you know, this is the, the whole thing about home waters. In and around the Great Lakes, you know, things will vary from state to state, you know, that encompasses all this region. So there are some variations between each localized region. So you have to sort of take that into consideration. You know, if you plan on bouncing around from one state to another state, if you're looking to, you know, steelhead fish in and around the Pennsylvania, Ohio, you probably get a seven weight. If you're looking to go to Michigan, New York, you're going to probably bump it up to an eight weight. So you always take these little considerations, you know, into play. Let's start to dig into things. And let me start off by saying many times anglers think that their casting is not the best, but it's just that the line is not heavy enough to load the rod at the distance that you're trying to cast, you know, and then you're really fast to blame the rod or the line, right? And I think this is really key. So let's talk, you know, everybody hears this word terminology, rod load. Well, let's make it super simple. Rod load is nothing more than the bending of the fly rod. That's what it is, how much it bends back and forth and flexes. And I think the most and the best and the simplest analogy I've heard came from one of the most iconic fly anglers in the world, Tim Rajeff, owner of Echo Rods World Champion Caster. I engaged in one of his classes when he came into town a long time ago. Go on record, it was the best money ever spent. He refers rods to springs. There are some light tension ones and there are some heavy tension ones. And it's the weight of the line that bends these springs or rods that allows us to cast with the most efficiency. Pretty darn simple once I heard that and he explained that to me. It was like a light bulb went off, right? I also think of matching the rod to your personality or profile. You know, a type A personality, go, 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 might be a little better suited for a faster action rod. You know, and if you're a little more relaxed, a little more chilled out uh, of an angler, you might roll with a moderate to moderate fast action rod, right? It just, it's all about the timing and the tempo and what feels. The rod has to want to give you feedback and talk to you. And when you have the right line on it, you'll know it because it, it talks to you and able you to make your tempo of your cast more pleasurable. One category that I fall into is the aging angler, just not wanting always to crush the cast, right? Elbows, arms, shoulders, right? So I, I sort of lean now more towards moderate to moderate fast action rods, slow my cast down a little bit more, improve my hauls, and let the rod flex do the work for me. And I think a lot of anglers will really notice that is if you work on your haul more than rod speed and pushing the rod, you'll notice that life will be much easier if you start to really concentrate on your what's called your hauls of your casting. 
check out Halls. I would like to share a reoccurring story that relates to this in one way or another. And it all started quite a long time ago. There's been countless starts to the day in my past where my client or clients, you know, start to assemble their rods and they string them up. And then I tie on a fly or the, or the rigging that was needed for the day. And the tempo was fast paced, right? You know, on my end and the client's ends both. I had the nervous twitch to go hit the water fast and, you know, get him into a fish. And then I would, I would look down at their wading boots, you know, as wherever they're by the truck. And I saw they were barely tied. So I knew they were excited to get going too. So, you know, when I first started guiding, you know, my focus, as you saw, was like to go out and catch a fish and not really, really about the finer points of the day. And if the wheels, you know, fell off, I would just hand them one of my outfits and it improved their casting and presentation quite a bit. So, you know, I said, oh, geez, sometimes then I would try casting the rods and it was almost impossible to cast. And it was not fun at all. Thinking to myself, not good. Why didn't I check that out sooner to see if their line and their rod was actually properly matched to make their life easier for the day. So now I do things much different. I start by chatting prior to the trip and evaluating their equipment on and off the water. You know, the value of a guide is not only about the fish catching, but it's also about shortening your learning curve and working on skill sets to make your day more enjoyable, understanding all aspects of the day's adventure, all the way down to the tippet to the go-to flies of the day. Sometimes the smart play, if you're planning on getting into the new game or a new venue, is to take a guide trip, use their equipment first. Then you can make a much more educated decision on what you like or you dislike with their rod and line combos. Maybe even ask them for their suggestions. I'm sure they're all very willing to help you out through that process. Squala Fly Fishing combining advanced materials with fishing-focused purpose-built design. Squala waders, jackets, shirts, pants, and insulation are made for us. To help Wet Fly Swing listeners right now, Squala is offering a 10% discount on your next order. Just visit squalafishing.com and use the coupon code WETFLYSWING10 at checkout. That's Squala, S-K-W-A-L-A, gear for us, the serious angler. Now, like, where do we start? How many lines? How many rods do we really need, right? Well, let's just go on record. I am not a good judge of that. I have way more line options than you really need for the basic fly angler. Fly fishing has a tendency to make it way harder than it really is when you first get into it as a basic angler. So, you know, on my end, I'm the junkie. I generally carry around 11 rods rigged, you know, on the boat with another 20 lines on reels to match any circumstances that arises for the day. So, but, you know, I'm at that far end of the spectrum. In general, 
I would say three lines per rod is perfect, and that will get the job done most of the time, just no different than choosing if you were going to go golfing. Yes, you could play nine or 18 holes with one club, but it would be way easier if you had a little more clubs in your bags and if we had a few more rods in our quiver to work with along with some lines. So let's just talk a little bit about, you know, a little fun fact. When it comes down to rods, trout rods with matching floating lines is the highest percentage of what is sold across the board and it keeps the fly fishing industry afloat. Most anglers fall into this category sometime in their fly fishing journey. If it's just to visit a local trout stream, if it's to go on a destination family trip to the Yellowstone and experience, you know, a float trip for trout there. But sometimes in your journeys, you will find your trout rod with your floating line going to be in your quiver. So let's talk a little bit about the rods when we first pick them out, right? And this is just going to go back to the same things that we're going to keep reiterating so you sort of have an idea. So where do you plan on fishing the most? That's always the first question I ask is like, what's your, what we call home waters, right? If you draw a bullseye around your, where you live, and let's just say 80 miles, 50 to 80 miles. That's within reason that you could just zoom out there, fish for a half a day and get back. Hopefully it's a little closer, but if not, you know, no big deal either. And then what species are in your home water, right? You know, is your home water right on the Great Lakes like mine, one of the big ponds where you're casting off a piers? Is it one of a, a river, small river, big river? Is it like we talked about? a little retention pond, or is it a small in the leg by you? You know, then you have to ask yourself is like, do I have a watercraft? Am I thinking about getting a kayak? Do I have a canoe? Maybe do I have a family boat that I maybe want to try to start fly fishing big water off of, right? Along with water skiing and tubing with the kiddos, right? But yeah, those are things that you have to consider when you start looking at the rods, narrow it down, and then make a, a valid decision from there. So now how much do you want to spend, right? And I think depending on if you've got some, you know, extra little reserve uh, slush fund somewhere, or if you really got to dig into your budget, right? But I'm going to go on record, just because a rod costs more does not make you a better caster. Trust me, I know. <laughs> I've got some entry-level rods, and I've got some very, very nice rods I use. And Sometimes I can't see the advantages of that high-end rod because I'm not at that high level of casting. I can cast okay. I get the job done, but I'm not that high level of caster. But I will say that as your skill sets improve, and if you decide to purchase a higher-end rod, they shine because they have what's called reserve power. They're lighter generally speaking, in weight, they have less deflection to the target and better line control at distance. So, you know, if you ever plan on saltwater fishing, I think this is where you would really want to look into some of the higher, higher end rods for pricing there. It'll just, you will something you'll grow into. 
if you're just getting into the game and you want to keep the budget down into the, you know, within a nice minimal amount, I would say it's better off to invest in a better fly line or a couple of different fly lines rather than going into the top tier rod. I think you'll see more advantages of getting a line over a rod in this situation, but that's your choice. Um, you can't make a wrong decision, right? You're getting into fly fishing. What's better than that? So what single hand rod for the Great Lakes, big water or inland lakes? And I'm just going to go on record that this is something that's been transpiring over years. It's not for everybody, you know, where you're getting in and you're, you're it's actually like saltwater fishing on freshwater, right? You're, you're actually what you're doing. It's, you do most of the time. You need some type of watercraft. Sometimes you don't. You can get it from a pier, You that's which is big water. You can get it from jetties. But what rod would you choose when it comes down to the Great Lakes area? Um, and this goes for warm or cold water species. Um, we chase them all here around the Great Lakes, as you know. But if you just had to pick one rod, I think it would be on an average of an eight foot, four inch to nine foot, eight weight. And I think I would directly go into a saltwater model because inevitably, if you're looking at that, you sometime in your fly fishing journey, you might want to go saltwater fishing. And I picked the eight weight because it was right in the sweet spot to get the job done for a little bit of everything. It has an, enough mass of a fly line in the eight weight, and it has enough backbone that allows you for big payload delivery from air-resistant flies all the way down to heavier sinking lines. You can cast it easier at distance rather than the six or seven weight. It helps in windy conditions. I will say the eight weight is that next level. There's a huge jump from, I feel, seven to eight weight. But that eight weight gets the job done in the winds a little easier if you're just beginning out. It allows you to fish those heavier sinking lines, like I said. And then if, for instance, you want to try fishing deeper in the water column, that's going to allow you to get into that next depth level of fishing if need be during the late warmer waters periods. You know, and another thing people don't consider is with that eight weight, it plays out larger fish faster and it allows for a healthy release. Sometimes we have a tendency to overplay fish with a little lighter rod, especially if there's some larger fish and the fish uh, during late season and that water starts getting up in that high temperature zone for cold or water, you know, warm water species, we push it to the limit. So that eight weight can, you know, put them out pretty fast. And then, like I said, you can always use it for saltwater excursions, you know, if for future or even right away excursions on a family vacation. So now look at sort of my platform that when I use a multiple rod options, right? So now when I look at it is that I usually will pick an eight foot, four inch to nine foot, seven weight. That is my go-to rod on a daily basis on the Great Lakes. I use it a lot in general just for stripping streamers. It's a great weight for all species from cold water to warm water. 
it's heavy enough and it has enough mass with the lines that I can cast at some distance. And if I happen to catch a few smaller fish, it still gives me that, you know, a little bit of plane. But that's my go-to. Then I would match that if you go with the multiple rod option is that I would jump right over the eight weight and I would get a nine or a 10 weight saltwater model. That's going to give you the platform to cover everything on the big water that you absolutely can think of. You know, that 10 weight is going to cover a huge payload delivery. It's going to cover all the species. It's going to allow you or a nine or 10 weight to cast for muskies. It's going to allow you for pike fishing, giant frogging for small mouse, you know, the air resistant, big bass poppers. You can fight the wind with that nine or 10 weight. It just leaves no stone unturned from the surface down to 20 to 30 feet if you have that seven weight and then complement it with that nine or 10 weight. Another thing that I think that you really need to take a look at, and this goes for a fishing aspect, is if you are planning on fishing in and around the Great Lakes and you're starting to use sinking lines and I use a lot of nine weights most of the time because I need, and listen to this carefully, I need that heavier sinking line to keep my fly at fishing depth at a fast strip pace. In order to get those neutral fish to go, I basically have to use a nine weight with a super heavy sinking line and just burn that in, but at that, because it sinks so heavily, I can keep it down in the water column to get those fish to aggressively strike. So sometimes it's not all about the casting, it's all about the thought process of the rigging at the end of the rod and what you're trying to achieve. You can cover a whole lot of things, but the last of the of the rods for the big water is specialty rods. And I think one that's been, a, you know, there's a growing allegiance is in the musky anglers, right? We use single hand musky rods that have assisted butts to them that we can do the boat side maneuvers with. But we also have dedicated two handed rods that allow us to go up to grain weights of 750 grains, cast a two handed rod overhead and two-hand strip it in or single-hand strip it in with a two-handed rod just to relieve basically casting fatigue that you can cast longer distances for longer and also be able to propel super big flies with super big sinking heads or floating heads much easier. There's some lines that's been out now introduced for the two-handed rods that are going to be game changers here coming up in the next few years, just uh, FYI. So that was for big water. What about single hand rods for tributaries? Well, we're not even going to get involved with anything inland because you could have a whole podcast just on single hand rods for trout and everything else. But let's mainly talk about the tributaries that are connected to the Great Lakes. And we'll talk about the migratory species. We have the migratory trout, we have the migratory salmon, you know, we have the migratory smallmouth, we have it all, carp, everything. So I think everybody in general eventually is going to get that nine foot 
five or six weight, right? That's usually what they're going to start out with. That's usually what the shops are probably going to lean you towards if you're just getting out. But if you're looking to get serious around the Great Lakes, and this is going to go for Ohio, Pennsylvania, Minnesota, Upper Peninsula, Michigan, I'm going to recommend that you start out with a 10 foot seven weight. That's going to get the job done for you. And if you are living in Michigan, lower Michigan, if you're living in Wisconsin, if you're living in New York or Canada, I'm going to probably roll with a 10 foot eight weight. The fish are going to be a little bit larger on those other uh, bordering states. They have an opportunity to get up to close to 20 pounds in some of those rivers. Plus, um, a lot of their characteristics are inundated with a lot of wood debris. So you have to have that eight weight to bear down and at least maybe hopefully change the direction of a crazy, you know, steelhead moving that way. You know, and then you just don't think about a 10-foot rod as a dedicated river rod, too. You know, it's it's one foot longer. Don't get me wrong. It's not your nine-footer, but you can always use that seven or eight weight 10-foot rod for other venues and for other fishing opportunities, right? You can go off, off into the piers with it. If you've got a float tube, if you've got a kayak or a small paddleboard, it's going to allow you to make casts with a longer rod without touching the water on your back cast, right? Another option with those 10 foot seven and eight weights, it's going to be a perfect opportunity for you to dive into the single hand spay options, right? Before you get a dedicated switch rod or a spay rod, you can dive right into it and get yourself a single hand spay line, dump it on the front of your rod and reel combo, and you'll be set to go. One last little you know, FYI, if you are planning on gauging to the salmon program, which are in, you know, New York, Michigan, and Wisconsin, I'm going to have to say that you probably should go with a nine or 10 weight, right? These fish can get pretty large. And like I said, inundated with just lots of wood and some, some are pretty fast current situations, you know, that nine and 10 weight you know, it's going to be a much better tool than going right into a seven or eight weight. So that's a little gray area that you might have to add a rod if you really want to chase both, but, and not to say that the nine or 10 weight won't work for steelhead, but it's a pretty big stick. You know, you can maybe get a nine footer and that way it'll cross over to your big water game. So that's probably where I would settle is like a nine foot, nine or 10 weight for salmon and then use it for big water applications if needed. So that was the single hand game for rivers. What about the two-handed switch rod crossover rods for the tributaries, right? A full dedicated two-handed rod, the links start out at 12 foot and they go all the way up to 18 feet. The 16 to 18 foot rods are really not that popular in our area. They're pretty big sticks. They're pretty cool, but not many applications that we find in the Great Lakes region. A two-handed rod, you know, and they usually start around the six weight. They start out in the in loads with about 360 to 400 grains. 
is that's the weight of the head or the spay line that starts that two-handed line category off and that grain weight. But as a rule of thumb, you can generally say that a six-weight dedicated two-handed rod, give or take 400 to 450 grains if we're a six-weight. And then if you add 50 grains, you can go up one rod weight for every 50 grains up. So just to confirm, if we've got a six weight that grains at 450 grains, our seven weight would grain at 500, a full two-hander will, and an eight weight around 550. And this is just a basic ruler thumb. As we get into it later down in, in the presentation and the episode, we can talk a little bit more about lines. But right now, we're talking about the rods themselves. You know, a full dedicated two-handed rod really shines when you have longer full traditional spay lines or longer Scandinavian heads. In our geographic area of the Great Lakes, 12 to 14 feet are the most popular. They're super good for the bigger rivers, wading, or even off of a watercraft. So like if you're starting to wade deep, you know, you're, you're going to find yourself really appreciating that longer rod, especially on the Muskegon, Manistee, Salmon River, some of these larger rivers where you got to wade a little bit deeper. Uh, my go-to is a 13.67 weight because I'm vertically challenged and I, it seems like I'm always wading deep, even when the water's only like four foot deep, right? But that's my go-to. And if you're spay casting off of a watercraft in some of the larger rivers where you're working your way down the run, some of the captains really don't want you to step up on the back deck or the casting platform. They want you to stay within the confines of the cockpit. You know, it's really cold water, cold winds, and they don't for safety purposes, right? Or spooking fish. So a lot of them opt out to go to that, you know, 13 or but even closer to a 14 foot rod so you can clear the anchor rope scope off the front with the chain or around the back of the outboard a little bit easier than you would be if you had a shorter switch rod so a lot of them opt for that larger two-handed rod and with the full two-hander it's a big payload you know you're using larger grain weights than you will with the switch rod. So you're going to have bigger payloads delivery. You know, you have a little bit better line control at distance. You know, remember the boat is stationary, you're stationary, and the fish are stationary, but the water's moving. So you, you're you having, you know, when you're swinging the fly sometimes that first couple men's, or if you're trying to control that line better and confuse currents, it gives you a little better opportunity with a, a little longer rod, right? So that 12 to 14 fits right in that wheelhouse, but I'd say closer to that 13 to 14. So if I was going to pick, you know, a 15-footer, I usually have my 15-footers for floating line work on big rivers. That's like, you know, in the Great Lakes, the St. Mary's is a classic. If the if the compensator gates are down and I want to swing a nice floating line with a long mono leader and fish a number 10 muddler, that 15-foot rod really shines with a nice, you know, mid-belly to 
long belly line. So I do have a few 15 footers for the Great Lakes and uh, fits in my arsenal. I think one of the cons that you might want to look at is overkill with a two-handed rod. Some of our venues support a fairly smaller size fish for migratory fish, right? From two to six pound being bigger. And if you happen to get, you know, a full two-hander in there and you're fighting these smaller fish, it's really healthy for the fish. You know, you pull them right in, but sometimes it's just, you know, you got a big stick, right? You're taking a gun to a knife fight. So a lot of times, you know, think about your venue, your home waters, and you might want to actually scale away from the full two-hander and drop into that switch rod category there where you might have a little more fun with the fish without harming them, of course. So that was the two-handed rods, and there's a lot of applications for them. But I'd have to say over the years now, the last 10 years or so, the growing allegiance for switch rods has really taken off. And the switch rod is basically a category of rods that is sandwiched between your 10-foot and under single-hand rods and your 12-foot and over designated two-handed rods. These are going to be from around 10-foot 4 inches up to around 11-foot 9 inches. Very, very popular. They shine in my home waters on the south shores of Lake Erie and Pennsylvania and all the other smaller tributaries that go into the Great Lakes. But I sort of like to divide them into two groups. And, you know, the group one is going to be, we always go by mass or grain weight when we're talking about casting or swung fly. It's the shooting head or the line weight that enables us to propel the fly or the mainly the sink tips because we don't have many opportunities for floating lines in the Great Lakes. So that 270 to 330 grain weight, and that will cover four weight switch rods up to seven weight. That's my sweet spot. I have a half a dozen of those. The nice thing about that is I still consider those a true switch rod because I can cast those rods one-handed or two-handed. Once you get up over 330 grains and you start getting close to 400 grains, it's a lot to cast single hand. So I sort of stay under that. I can use indicator rigs with that very easily, one-handed or two-handed. I also like it because it can double as a trout spay in bigger rivers. Uh, Missouri, you know, if you go to Yellowstone, it can double as that trout spay for you too. So it's a multi-purpose for me. I can use switch lines on it and cast it overhead really well. I can swing flies with it. And it's just light enough that sometimes a lot of the anglers, they actually use one of their traditional single hand lines. And if you use your basic single hand line and go two weights over your switch rod weight rod, that line will work. So let's just review that. If you have a single hand line, seven weight, you can use it on a five weight switch rod. So that's another advantage. You might have some cross over purposes for some lines that you already have. It does deliver small to medium payloads, which is nice. 
and I can use it still on the beach or the pier head options to cast overhead with a shooting line. So it does have those options too. Togiak River Lodge is the Alaskan adventure every fly fisherman dreams of. The lodge specializes in remote and exclusive fishing trips for all five species of salmon, plus rainbows, dolly barden, and much more. Togiak is the only lodge with access to 30-plus miles of river, the best guides, the best boats, and lots of fish with little pressure. I'll be heading up there this summer, so check in with Jordan and the crew right now to find out what they have available. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash Togiak to learn more right now. That's Togiak, T-O-G-I-A-K, to discover that wilderness experience you've been looking for. So let's talk about group two now. So group two is the top end of switch rods, which I consider true switch rods, right? They're going to start graining at around 360 grains, and they go up to around 440 grains. And that's going to be in and around an eight weight, right? That seven and eight weight, um, there really is no nine weight switch rods. So it's like up to an eight weight. And those, you know, you could also use switch lines on them because they make switch lines all the way up to 400 grains. But now with that extra grain weight, you can, you start to deliver medium to bigger payloads. You can accommodate bigger weighted flies. You can accommodate larger, heavier sink tips. And now if it's a windy day, you can combat the wind a little bit easier if you're not the best caster. Or even if you're a good caster, it makes life a little easier on windier, super windy days when it's blowing 15, 25 or more. You can deal with higher river flows because you can add, you know, you have that added extra weight and a large, little bigger sick tips. But I think one of the key factors is if you happen to live by a small to medium river that has sole to it with larger fish, like we can use the Paramerquette, for example, that definitely would help out because you need to have a little heavier sink tip to get down in those buckets quicker and no problem at all. My home river would be the Grand River. When the Grand River gets a little bigger, you're going to probably want to have a little heavier sink tip, right? When it starts to get up around that 750 cubic feet per second, I'm usually going to my group two heavier switch rods than my normal go-to group one lighter switch rods. There's another right now rod that really is sort of under the QT that you hear about it. You know, if you're a spay geek like myself, it's called the crossover rods or short spays. So these rods are designed to be grained at a full two-handed specs, but they still fall within a switch rod length. They're 10 foot four to around 11 inch and they grain at like 360, but they'll go all the way up to 600 grain lines. So these crossover short spays rods were designed to use the compact Skagit heads that are new on the market here in the last three years or so. They're designed for the really tight backdrop casting with overhead canopy trees on the OP, maybe, you know, on your home river where you're just wading deep and you're right up against the bank. These shorter, full, you know, grain short spay rods are perfect for that. They deliver huge payloads because of the short heads with the big grain weight. They deliver huge sink tips. 
I mean, if you've got, you know, if you've got an 11 and a half foot nine weight, you're going to be delivering 600 grains with T18 all day long for King Salmon. So these short spays have their, their place. They're best for fighting big fish and fast current and also medium rivers that have soul to them too. So check that out. It might check the box for you and your venues that you call home. So those are the those are the three categories that you can look at. So we talked a little bit about the rods there. We broke them all down into that. And there's just, you could go on and on forever with that. So if you have any questions, don't be afraid to reach out, you know, and be more than happy to ask them if you, before you make your purchase or just want to chat about it, right? So let's match the lines to your rods. How many do you need? How do you do it? So this is going to, you know, start out real basic here, but a lot of times I think you have to start there, right? Especially if you're a beginner and you're listening on in. Thanks for the listen. Most fly lines are around 90 feet long. And you need to look at the schematics on the Grand's website or on the box at the fly shop. And you'll notice that they're divided into four sections of mass. And the main sections of mass are the belly which is the largest, we call, I call it the driver. It's the thickest part. And it's sandwiched between two tapered sections. One that's in the rear, which goes towards the rear, towards the reel. And the other is towards the front that tapers towards the leader and your fly. In general speaking, those three sections are around 64 feet on an average fly line, but they can get as short as 35 feet. And then after that, what ends up happening is, is that on the rear section of the taper, there's a length of line that goes out to the rest of the 90 feet, which is level, which is referred to as running line. So let's back up and look at that number 64 and 35. So when you purchase your line, that's going to be either a level line. It's going to have a double taper on both ends, what's called double taper for trout fishing. But in our real world, we're going to be really looking at what's called weight forward lines. That means that that three tapers, that means that the rear taper, the belly, the driver sections, and the front taper, how short is it? That's going to be the determining factor of how much mass or aka weight forward is in that line up towards the front, towards your leader. Real simple. If you're looking to fish close, you want a very short weight forward line, close to that 40 to 35 foot. If you need to cast and fish at distance, then you're going to be looking at a weight forward line where the entire line is around 64 feet long. Longer lines, longer casts, longer presentations, shorter weight forward lines, shorter casts, shorter presentation, along with bigger payloads. So how do we plan that, right? You have to plan it on same exact things we keep going over and over, like what species, the home water, the river, big water, the whole thing, right? So let's target a couple more bullet points. Now think about the average distance of cast 
that you're going to make during the course of the day on your home waters. Is it going to be 20 feet? Is it going to be 40 feet? Or is it going to be 50 feet? Or is it going to be more than 50 feet? So rule of thumb, what I divide it in two, if I'm casting under 50 feet, I'm going to get a shorter weight forward line. If I'm going to be trying to cast 45 feet in more all the time, I'm going to be getting a longer weight forward line. And next is going to be, once we determine how far we're going to cast, the size of the fly and the rigging really is important. You can't ask a really long, thin fly line to deliver mass, big payload like split shots, indicators, and big weighted flies casting close. So if you plan on fishing bigger flies, weighted flies, warm or cold water species, or rigging with an indicator, always roll with a shorter weight forward line that allows you to be more pleasurable casting in shorter casting distances. You just, it's all about mass moving mass. Next thing you have to consider on no matter what the length of the line is or the head is, is the air temperatures. There are different characteristics to the design of every line from cold to warm to extremely warm temperatures. So you have to look at the ambient temperatures that you plan on fishing that line in the most. And you can go outside the box a little bit, but just to take a look at that, and we'll get into that a little bit deeper here soon. And then the next is like stealthy landing on the water after the cast. Like, does it matter if it splashes down with a big kerplunk, like for largemouth? Not really. But if you're chasing carp or you're chasing wary smallmouth, where you've got to lay that, you know, floating dragonfly out there and it's 60 feet away, it doesn't want to land with a big plunk, right? Or if you're fishing for carp at distance, you want to land it soft, you're going to probably want to get a less aggressive weight for a line. And then last is going to be, if you have a short line, it's only good for mending in rivers at short distances. If the river is, say, 50 feet or less, it doesn't matter. But if you have a larger river that you're fishing always over 45 or 50 feet, the mending with the short head can get difficult, and you probably want to opt out for a full, longer, taper weight forward line. And then the last is, you know, when you're going to go purchase the lines is, you know, how much you really want to spend, right? Lines can get fairly pricey now, over $100 and then some. So, you know, ask yourself, do I really need the top tier line and do I could get two mid-price limes rather than the top tier line? But I'll just, well, what do you really get for that top tier line? Well, A, you're going to get longevity. With longevity, you're going to get durability and you're also going to get some additives that's going to give you a little slicker coatings that's going to be sort of like just renewing itself that allows you to get that longevity, durability, a little farther casting distances. It's just a little more pleasurable to cast. And then some of the other features, you know, uh, some of the brands have no stretch cores. Are you planning on casting at distance and strip setting at distance? You know, that low stretch core might come into play too. And then the last can be, you know, can it be multi-purposed line, right? That's going to be the, the whole key to that is can I use it for something else and, you know, maneuver that into my fishing arsenal? So 
we talked a little bit about the lines, you know, a little bit about the tapers and we can go on forever, but we should probably back up and just, if you're just getting into it, that all rod brands, when they manufacture the rods, they have a numerical system on them, which is called the weight, right? And it starts out at, you know, two weight, but not really. But realistically, in our geographic area, we use three weights up to 10 weights. And the rod is lighter in action and smaller with the lower number and then heavier as we work up the numerical system. So when the rod companies starts to design these rods in the weight numerical system, they had to match them to the lines. So when you go and buy your lines at the shop, you will see that they are matched with a numerical system too. It's really easy. If you got a six weight, you put a six weight rod on a six weight line in 99.9% of the time, it's going to work pretty darn good. So there is a standard that in your free time, it's called the American Fly Fishing Trade Association, AFTA. And they have standards that what fly lines should weigh. Remember, we're going back to the Tim Ray Jeff analogy. We have to bend the spring with weight. Well, they have a standard that sort of the rod companies and line companies go by. And we call it the first 30 feet minus the level tip. And this goes back to sometimes when you think your casting is not the best, it's generally when you're trying to cast under 30 feet. So the rod companies and the line manufacturers, we picked a length of 30 feet off the end of the rod tip, 25 to 30. And anything under that, the rod will not talk to you. So when you first get out the cast and you're casting short and you really can't feel much, but you'll notice as you start to work line out, 25 or 30 feet, the rod starts to bend, load, and then you start to feel the rod talk to you that allows you to progressively master the tempo and the pace of your cast. So 30 feet is the magic, you know, approval of AFTA and the grain weights, the weight of the line that you want to look into. So there's a little gray area, you know. So once you check out AFTA, you'll notice that their standards are going to be recommendations are better for all around applications for fly fishing. It shines, you know, with lighter payloads, longer casting distances, and when the, you know, subtle water landings are needed, but they had to pick something that was perfect for everybody, just not in and around our Great Lakes regions where we're always hucking big flies and fishing deep and big rivers, right? So that might come into play. So what we'll find out is that there are lines that are made differently. All rod blanks are not made the same because of the rod blank taper and the blank materials. So it's always a good practice to work with your local fly shop and get their input, you know, and hopefully cast a few lines with the flies that you intend to fish with, you know, the most and just get a feel for it. You can always bend and load the rod more or less by changing line weight. Let me chat a little bit about a story that really opened my eyes was 
We were at the Scientific Anglers Factory at a meeting in Midland, Michigan, and there were 10 six-weight identical rods, but there were 10 different six-weight lines on these rods, and the lines weren't marked, and we weren't allowed to look at them, and they asked us that were attending from sales rep to staff employees to cast all these rods. And it was amazing just by changing the dynamics of the tapers of the lines and the weight forwardness, how it changed the action and the bending of the rods. It was, I think that was the eye opening for myself to really understand how matching the lines and the rods make a huge difference of what you're trying to achieve. So let's start digging in a little more. My choice in general is if you had just one line to buy, and it's always going to be a floating line, you know, you always start out with a floating line. You don't need to get into a specialty line away because floating lines, there's so many options with floating lines. That's just unbelievable. I would get in that 50 to 60 foot head range, weight forward, and I'd probably recommend getting it a half line heavy if you wish. Nothing wrong with that, especially if you're a beginner caster. I think it'll help you out feeling the rod load a little better in close, especially maybe not at distance, but definitely in close. But number two, and this is a floating streamer line. It's it's more of a, a shooting head, but it's 33 and a half feet long. It's two sizes heavy. It's my go-to line for everything I guide from six weight to 11 weight floating. It's the Scientific Angler Mastery Titan. It's not a top end of the line. It's not the long. It's the standard mastery. It comes into my wheelhouse of what I guide for the most. I have smaller rivers. They're 50 feet, you know, at the most, maybe 60 feet. They're pretty narrow. My home waters of the Great Lakes, I'm always delivering some bigger flies. Um, I'm also delivering a lot of weighted flies. So it allows me to get away with that. If I'm on the river, it allows me, you know, less back casting room because it's a very short head. It allows me to do some spade casting with indicators. It allows me to do better, easier wall casting for my clients. It has really big payload for fishing indicator rigs. And a nice thing about it is, is that I can also use a swung fly approach by either dropping on a weighted fly with a long nylon leader But generally speaking, I can just loop on a sinking leader, then put a weighted fly on, and I'm right in the game of swinging a run on one of my home rivers or a smaller river in other states. So it actually has a very good application. The next is going to be, if you want to go a little longer, you could get the same line, but just a slight bit longer. And This would apply to some longer, a little bit bigger rivers where the rivers are a little wider than the south shores of Lake Erie. It's a floating streamer line too, very aggressive, weight forward head. It's two line sizes heavy, 43 feet or so. This is the SA Amplitude Smooth Titan Long. So it's longer than the one that I'm using. And I do use Titan Longs for certain venues. But when you lengthen up the line, that streamer line, you get better loop control at distance. You have better control on the water surface at distance. And if you need to, you can basically cast 
to wary your fish at distance when needed. A lot of times you can't get right up on the fish with a short head and just get in there and be a home wrecker, right? You've got to be a little stealthy with some long casts, especially in clear water situations, low clear water, cold water, stuff like that. So let's talk and take a little break about air temperatures and what to expect from lines. And this is, I think, is real important because a lot of times there's a lot of uh, profanity words slung out there because, and I'm included, when lines are hard to manage. You know, all lines are designed to work best in windows of air temperature, ranging from cold to extreme hot. You know, and when you push the limits of the line one way or the other, things start to happen. When you're using a line designed for warm to hot temperatures and the temperatures drop below the optimal design window and gets cold, the line has a lot of memory and it coils up and it becomes very difficult to manage. You know, that's a problem when you start pushing that warm going to cold. The same as if you have the line when you have a colder air temperatures and it gets warm and the line will not have enough memory, right? So if you have a cold water line and you're fishing out in those 80 some degree days, the line's going to want to feel like it wants to melt and it gets sticky and it wants to tangle, you know, and it's just hard to deal with. But, and that's the one I mostly deal with is with the cold water lines and push into their extreme temperature range. The cool thing is over the last few years, the companies are really understanding that, you know, an angler wants to bridge the gap between these, these really minute temperature changes and these lines will just, the wheels fall off of these lines. So their technology and advancements and designs are starting to change and improve and mesh and smooth out the issues mixing cold and warm water cords with dipper temperature coatings. And I had a chance to play with a few of these last year, and I will go on record saying that there's great things to come in the future, and I think you'll start to see some big changes in lines here and for the benefit of the angler, just not for everybody, just for the benefit for all of us fishing. So most of the time, we're fast to blame the lines and the manufacturers and I want you to realize and take a look when you're fishing of when you're pushing that line outside of its design limit. I'll give you a little story about me being lazy, super lazy, and not being, you know, aware of my what was really going on, right? And when what happened. So I had a warm water line on, and we were fishing out on Lake Erie trying to check the box on a first walleye on the fly. And nice, super sunny, bright, sunny day, the greatest day you can imagine when it came down to fishing. But you can only imagine when you have a bright, sunny, calm day and you're asking a walleye to bite on a fly, things didn't go real well. So we opted to stay out and go into the evening and into the nightfall to see if we can get these fish to be active during the, the cover of darkness. And that's usually when it happens anyway. So because it was a clear day and the temperature started dropping dramatically, probably about 12 to 15 degrees, the wind started changing a little bit. And we had that warm water line design on and it tangled so bad that we could not deal with it. We just put it down underneath the gunwales and the rod rack. And I dealt with it watching a long movie. I think it took me 20 minutes. So 
just not being aware and being lazy of not changing to a cold water line, which I had on board, you know, that's was not the line's fault. It wasn't the angler's fault. That was me just being lazy, not understanding, pushing that line out of its temperature zone. I can give you a few tips. So if you have a warm water line and it gets a little cold out and you're pushing it, stretch it out occasionally between the casts. Be aware if it's starting to get a little bit wadded up on you, right? Stretch it out. Take the time. You know, if the water is a little warmer than the air, go ahead and drop it in the water before you cast again and pick it back up on the deck or pick it up in your stripping basket. Leave it in the water a little bit longer, you know, rather than stripping into the stripping basket. But be aware of what's always going on with your non-dominant hand and holding that fly line. If you have a cold water line, you got to keep it out of the sun. Keep it covered in the watercraft. If you're on the river, if you're on the, one of the big lakes, my trick is I use a white towel and I get it wet and I lay it on the deck of the boat and I lay my line on it when I'm fishing. And then when we're moving from spot to spot, I take that wet towel and I cover up the reels and the lines and keep them nice and cool and keep the sun off of them. The white reflects. So it gives me a little bit more manageable part. So I think there's a lot you can consider when it, it comes down to all the different fly lines to choose. I think this is a really good time that we're going to wrap things up for part one. You know, I hope this episode shines some light on a few topics and answered a few questions for the listeners that are just getting started out. Part two, I'll be covering single hand sinking lines, which is like my staple in A to Z spade lines and two handed lines. And I'll throw a few stories mixed in. So as usual, thanks for the listen. And if you have any questions, on any comments, reach out to Dave or me, and we'll be happy to connect with you. Tight lines, Great Lakes dude. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com, if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon.